eng. I forget what a chatty bunch you are. It's good to be here again uh, with uh, that part of God's family that is Mutley Baptist. It was great to see the children here this morning, wasn't it? I really felt part of your family this morning with all those children as we join in together uh, singing that lovely song, which I haven't sung for some years, but uh, that was really great. So um, it's wonderful to be here on Pentecost Sunday. And we've been singing about it, haven't we, uh, this morning, uh, about the Holy Spirit. We have welcomed him, we've invited him, we've asked him to come fill us, melt us, break us, uh, and to be here present with us. And so this morning we are looking at Acts 1, uh, verses 1 to 11, the promise of the Holy Spirit. If you come back this evening, we will be uh, looking at the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So today we leave it on a, this morning we leave it on a cliffhanger, EastEnders type moment at the end, uh, because this morning we are talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. So uh, I'm going to read um, from Acts 1, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to need my glasses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word which tells us so much of who you are, the word in which you've revealed yourself to us. And Lord, we pray uh, as we uh, look at this together, your Holy Spirit would come and would open up your word to us, would warm and quicken our hearts, would open our minds, our ears and our eyes to see and know and understand more of you, and to know the depths of your love for us and for this world. So, Lord, open our hearts, we pray. Open our hearts to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, um, as uh, you have been here before, and as many of you know, uh, I am a doctor, I'm a GP, I work in paint and live in Torquay. And uh, next week, uh, next Saturday, in fact, I have uh, my 20-year reunion from the time I qualified as a doctor. I heard no startled gasps that I couldn't possibly be old enough, but I'll take it that, uh, that uh, maybe one of you out there thought that. But uh, as I say, next week, 20 years, and it seems a long time. And uh, I can remember being a, a medical student, and I can remember uh, it being quite a good time, a time that was uh, hard work, but really actually uh, quite jolly, if I'm honest. And uh, we did work hard, but we didn't have much responsibility. Uh, when we were out seeing patients, there was always someone uh, with us around. Um, we didn't make big decisions, um, but we learned a lot, and that was good. But I have to say that about three weeks after um, traipsing across the stage, get, getting a degree, about three weeks later, you're suddenly on a ward. And it's three o'clock in the morning, and you've been called there because someone is having chest pains and can't breathe. And nothing you have done prepares you for that moment. You feel completely out of your depth, completely uh, unprepared and ill-equipped for what you need to do. And the good news is you learn pretty quick. So if any of you are going into hospital in the next few weeks, it's fine. you learn pretty quick. But for that moment, you just don't feel uh, like you're the right person for that job. And it's an anxiety and heart-churning moment. And I think as uh, we read this passage that uh, perhaps uh, the apostles felt something like this. Uh, Jesus is about to leave them. And uh, he has given them, we read it in this passage, a task and a call that is absolutely huge. He's asked them to go to the ends of the earth to tell people about him. And I think they must have felt a little bit overwhelmed and had that feeling that they were out of their depth. But in this moment, Jesus also promises them. He promises them the help and the power and the means, the person who will enable them to do it, the Holy Spirit. It's 40 days since Jesus' death and resurrection. That's just under six weeks. And during that time, as we read in the Gospels, Jesus has been present but strangely absent. He's been appearing and then disappearing. He's been eating with them. He's walked through walls. He's barbecued fish for them on a beach. He's taught them and he's instructed them. And all this, Luke tells us, has been through the Holy Spirit. Jesus has spoken to the disciples about the Holy Spirit before, and they would have been familiar with this idea of the Spirit of God, because as they read their Old Testaments, as they read the books that they had, they would have known that the Spirit was there at creation, that he comes in power at certain times through Israel's history, on the judges, uh, on leaders in Israel, on King David, uh, and equips them at certain times for special tasks. But Jesus is making it clear here that something new is about to happen. Don't leave Jerusalem, he says, but wait for a gift that my Father has promised. Because, you see, Jesus' work is not over. And uh, Luke says it here at the beginning. He's writing this book to his friend Theophilus, who's written his gospel uh, too as well. And he's talking about uh, the book that he wrote 
when he, he talked about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Began to do. Jesus has not finished working yet. His ministry is not over. He will do more in this world. And yet he is about to leave and go up to heaven. So how can this be? Well, we see that uh, his followers, his disciples, the people who will follow him, have a call. The disciples still don't quite get it. They still don't quite get what's about to happen. They know that Jesus was dead and is now alive. They've seen it. They've touched him. uh, They've spoken with him. They've eaten with him. And now they ask him this question. They ask him, Lord, what are you at this time going to do to restore the kingdom to Israel? But their vision is too small. And their concept is too limited. Their concept of the kingdom is too limited. They don't understand fully the role that they will play as Jesus' followers. Tom Wright likens this, uh, this part of Scripture to um, the disciples being part of an audience at a theatre. They're like an audience. They're watching a story unfold in front of them. They're waiting for tensions to be resolved. They're waiting for the plot lines to come together. They're waiting for the dramatic ending to work itself out when everything is sorted. And when suddenly, from where they're sitting, they are called up onto the stage to be part of the story. They are in it for real. And as disciples ourselves, as followers of Jesus Christ, we too, all of us, are called to be part of the unfolding story and part of the action. The apostles don't get it yet. Their question that they ask Jesus is an earthly question. It's about boundaries. It's about politics. It's nationalistic. It's saying, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They haven't yet fully understood that what Jesus has done, that the good news, the message of the gospel is for all nations. It's available to all people. But Jesus' response to them is a spiritual one. He's pretty firm. He says to them, don't speculate about the future, about the dates and the times. Don't get caught up in endless uh, thoughts about when I'm coming back again, but go and wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And he says to them, you will be my witnesses. If we look up the word witness in just an ordinary dictionary to see what it means, a witness is someone who sees something happen. A witness is someone who experiences important events. A witness is someone who can affirm the authenticity of something and can speak out publicly. And this is the actual call of the disciples. Not to be political agitators or men of force or speculators about the future or spectators watching a story, but to be witnesses. We read, don't we? We know the the verse as well, many of us, as we read at the end of Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus says to his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. 
And then he says this, and surely, surely he says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The message is to go out to all people, not just people who fit in with their culture, not just people who fit in with their ways, not just people who are nice, not just people who are good, not just people who look like them, who look like us, but to all people and to all nations. And Luke describes it here geographically like throwing a pebble in a pond. The ripples of the good news are to spread out to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, which is a nation that Israel really didn't get on with, and then even to the ends of the earth. I want you just to imagine for a minute what that must have felt like for the apostles. What would I have been saying to Jesus? What would you have been saying to Jesus at that moment? Well, I might have been saying this, don't go, Jesus, don't go. Don't go, stay around a bit longer. You'll be here to help us, right? You're you're not going to leave us because I get really tongue-tied whenever I'm asked about my faith. And the Roman soldiers, well, uh, they they seem pretty keen to uh, finish us off. And the Pharisees really can't stand us. They don't like us. And I don't know how we will travel, and I don't know how I'm going to get to the ends of the earth because it's really quite a long way. Um, There might be some diseases there. I'm not sure I'm going to have enough food or money. And I don't know who's going to provide the camels for me. They must have been filled with anxiety. They must have felt out of their depth. Because for them, at that time, they did not even know that the world was round. They didn't know whether the world was flat or round. And when Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth, they had no idea whether they were going to drop off the edge. They did not know where the ends of the earth were. And this is the task Jesus has given them. And it is staggering. How were they going to do this? Well, I believe that following Jesus is the most wonderful thing. I can personally say that as my life has unfolded and as I've journeyed through life, I can envision no other way. To be able to rest on the promises of his word, to know his acceptance, his love, his forgiveness, to know that he has rescued me, that he has changed me, that he is restoring me, to follow him and have a sense of call on my life, to share in the community that is church. That is all truly wonderful. But I also know that discipleship, that following Jesus is also incredibly hard and difficult. It requires difficult choices. It requires effort to keep our eyes fixed on him, not to wander off the path. I know, you know, that it's often hard to love. It's often hard to love our fellow Christians. It's often hard to love those we meet. It's often hard to love and live in church. It's hard too because we know, don't we, that each one of us wrestles with sin. We wrestle with temptation, with poor choices all our lives. We wrestle with doubt sometimes and despondency. The life of discipleship is hard because this world is fallen and because we are fallen and because the world outside is joyous but is dark and difficult too. 
We know, don't we, that sometimes it's really hard to be a witness, to be a witness to God in a society that is at best indifferent to what we believe, but often hostile to what we believe. We get tongue-tied talking to it. We may get anxious. People uh, in nations far away from us sometimes lose their lives because they're called to be witnesses to the wonders of God. And all this brings me back to the initial question, have you ever felt completely overwhelmed by a task or ill-equipped for it or unprepared? Well, God knows. God knows that we are human. He knows that we are like dust. And he therefore has not left us alone to do this task. He has promised us all we need to do all that he asks. And that is the promise. God promises a gift, something free and something good. There it is. In verse 4 and 5, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who gives power to equip us. But it would not be right to think of, uh, to limit how we view the Holy Spirit and to limit his work in terms of some sort of performance or what we might achieve as believers. And I'm going to read a a quote from um, J.I. Packer, who, for me, as I was uh, looking at this passage, has written one of the most helpful things I think I've read about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to read it, I'm going to read it a couple of times, because I really want us to take this, this in. He says this, that the distinctive, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant is to mediate Christ's presence to believers. That is, to give them such knowledge of his presence with them as Saviour, Lord, and God, that three things keep happening. First, personal fellowship with Jesus. Second, personal transformation of character into Jesus' likeness. And third, the Spirit-given certainty of being loved, redeemed, and adopted through Christ into the Father's family. I'm going to read it again. The distinctive, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit is to mediate Christ's presence to believers and to give us such knowledge of his presence with us as our Saviour, Lord, and God that three things happen and keep on happening. Personal fellowship for all of us with Jesus. Personal transformation of our characters into Jesus' likeness. And the certainty, the spirit-given certainty that we are loved and that we are redeemed and that we are adopted into the Father's family. The Spirit makes known to us the personal presence of Jesus in our lives and in our churches. It enables Jesus to fulfill the promise that says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, present by his Spirit to every believer. Well, Packer also uh, uses the illustration. See that magnificent building up there? 
of, um, of a church or other building that is lit up by floodlights. When a, a building is lit up well, the lights are placed not so that we look at the lights, so that our focus is drawn to the lights that are actually lighting up the building, but that our focus is drawn to what they illuminate. We see the building lit up, revealing detail and beauty, which without the floodlight we would not see. Without the floodlight, it would be dimmer and only poorly made out. And on the darkest of nights, we would not see it at all. And Packer describes the spirit as the hidden floodlight that shines on our Saviour. He makes Jesus known to us. And because he makes Jesus known to us, we are able to witness to what we know about Jesus as first-hand experience, as authentic uh, experience of his presence in our lives. And that grows in us as we get to know him more. The Holy Spirit illuminates his teaching. It illuminates his love for us. It gives us the certainty that we are God's children. As we meet with him in prayer, in our church life together, in worship, in community, when we're alone, when we're together. We read this uh, book, and it's a difficult book, isn't it, the Bible? It's not easy to understand often. There is much in it that uh, we don't get sometimes, but it's full of the truths and the promises and the wonder of God. And so when we read it, we ask, Spirit, light it up for us. Like a spotlight, bring out the truth so that it fills our hearts and that the truth comes alive to us and that it spills over into the lives of others so that it becomes real to us and real to others. This is where God reveals himself in the Bible. And so we ask the Spirit to help us as we approach it. And as I talk about experience and the experience and the Spirit uh, mediating Jesus' presence to us, I want to just also say that that presence is not always about a nice feeling. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's about a warm inner peace. Sometimes it's about feeling the presence of God and experiencing it and how we've sung about it, haven't we? How we long for that, how we yearn for it. But there are times in our lives when we don't feel the presence of God. Last time I was here, I talked about Mother Teresa, who had such a profound experience of the presence of God. She encountered uh, a vision of Jesus who told her to go and work amongst the poor of Calcutta. But she said after that, that she, later life, she just never regained and never sensed that presence of God again. And at times, he felt absent to her. And one of the most uh, famous uh, Christians who felt this was someone called St. John of the Cross, who wrote a book called uh, the dark night of the soul, when he simply could not feel the presence of God. But the promise is the same. The promise that Jesus gives, behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, is true for all of us. The promise of the Holy Spirit brings the personal presence of Jesus into our lives. Well, the other thing I would say is that the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts. He searches the depths of us. He knows all that we are and is in the process of renewing us. 
We are new creations, and yet still a work of transformation and change is taking place in each one of us as we cooperate with him, with his work in us, as we respond to all that he reveals and leads and corrects in us. Over the next few Sundays, if you're, um, if you're here over the next the rest of this series, you'll be looking at the role of the Spirit in many different areas. The role that the Spirit plays in spiritual growth and maturity, in prayer, in the spiritual battle that goes on around us, in the gifts that, God, uh, that the Holy Spirit graciously gives to us, and his role in assuring us of God's love. The work of the Spirit is multifaceted, And the power of the Spirit is beyond what we can imagine. The person of the Spirit bears the attributes of God. And so we welcome him, and we welcome all that he brings. In this passage, Jesus talks to his disciples about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Baptism, which means being washed and flooded and immersed. And uh, this uh, term, baptism of the Holy Spirit, is a term that uh, throughout church history has been controversial. And there are different denominations and different theologies and different thoughts and different churches who believe different things about um, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are some who believe that that happens at the same time as water baptism. There are some who believe it happens at a completely separate time. But, uh, but another time a Christian will ask for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will they'll be baptized. And there are others who believe that when someone turns to Christ, they immediately are baptized in the Holy Spirit. They receive the Spirit to them. And I'm going to come down off the fence today, and some of you may disagree with me, and I think that's okay because uh, we can disagree sometimes as Christians. But I believe that the Holy Spirit, when someone turns to God, when someone turns away from their sin and away from their old life and accepts that Jesus has died for them and that Jesus has offered them eternal life and forgiveness, when they turn to Jesus and accept his invitation to follow him and be his disciples, I believe that person receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is for every Christian, not just for an elite, not just for the super spiritual, not just for special people, not just for good people, but that he is the mediator of Jesus' presence for us all, present here in us and amongst us now. If you come back this evening, we're going to talk some more about that. But I believe the Holy Spirit is here and in us. And so I ask you the question this morning, if we really believe that, if we believe that the Spirit of God lives in us, doesn't that make a difference? Doesn't that make a difference to us as we walk out the doors this morning? It must, mustn't it, to know that we are not alone, that we are not ill-equipped, that we're not out of our depth, but we are filled and able to do all that he calls us to do and to be all that he asks us to be. I'm a long way out of my slides. <laughs> Got carried away. There'll be times for sure when the Holy Spirit will fill us up afresh, will touch us anew, will equip us for a particular task, when we will experience him in a new way, when we ask for more of him, when we ask him to come fill us afresh 
when we ask him to break us, to mold us, to shape us. There'll be times when he performs signs and wonders around us and through us and in us and in us that we have not seen before. Because Jesus says the Holy Spirit comes with power. And he's constantly at work, dynamic, powerful, but present in us all. And therefore, we are equipped to witness to the world the wonders of God. We're not all evangelists, and we're not all preachers, and we're not all called to church ministry. But each one of us walks out of these doors this morning and spends our week with real people in different situations. And each one of us has the opportunity to demonstrate the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. By our words, by transformed lives, by action. So let's this morning boldly ask for the Holy Spirit to come and to fill us anew. And to fill us in unexpected and wonderful ways. And to fan into flame a passion within us for the name of Jesus that we might be re-energized in our prayer, in our reading, in our words, in our discipleship, in our witness. Well, the final point uh, I want to make as uh, round this up is that Jesus' promise is for the present. Luke, uh, at the end of um, Acts, paints a really vivid picture. As I read this uh, passage, this is what jumped out of me. It's such a visual picture, isn't it? That Jesus leaves his disciples in the most dramatic of ways, his friends, uh, for the final time to take his place at the right hand of God the Father. And they are left gazing up into the sky, uh, looking at uh, the clouds where Jesus has disappeared. They're held there, aren't they, by perhaps by wonder at what's just happened, Or perhaps by nostalgia, uh, thinking about the past and having a little bit of inner turmoil, as we've already said, about what's going to happen next. Or they're waiting for him to come back. And then these two uh, men dressed in white, uh, two, it doesn't say they're angels, but I'm assuming they're angels, appear miraculously on the scene and kind of give them the equivalent of a verbal elbow in the ribs. Men of Galilee, they say. Men of Galilee, why are you just standing there looking up into the sky? And we might not think it's that inappropriate, is it, to be standing up looking into the skies. They know Jesus is coming back, but they need to move. They're to await the promise of the gift to come. And then they are to witness. They are to fulfill their calling. The temptation was just to stand there. Nostalgic for the time when things were different, when things were more vibrant, when things felt more real, when they were in the thick of ministry, when Jesus was there with them. That's one temptation. And the other one is just to stand there waiting and speculating about the future. Well, uh, recently I went to visit my sister and uh, her family. I have um, have two lovely nephews, in fact, and a niece. And I was with my niece uh, and nephew Leah and Malachi, and um, rather bravely, my sister left me in charge for the day because she was off somewhere. And um, I decided that we would go and meet uh, their grandparents, my parents, at a garden centre, and we would have some lunch together. And it was near where I grew up, uh, away from here, and I was confident that I knew exactly where I was going. I had the place pictured in my brain, in my head, and off we set. And what should have been a 20-minute journey 
actually took us an hour and a half. Because the place I thought I was going to was not the place at all. And um, I actually crossed three county borders on that journey, uh, from Surrey, from Berkshire to Surrey to Hampshire, and a couple more times in between. And I was getting quite uh, frazzled, and uh, there was a point when we were, we were stuck on the M3, which we should never have been on in the first place, and there were cones each side, and we were stuck in traffic, and I was pretty het up. And I turned, to, uh, I turned to the children, and I said, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry that we're not there yet. Um, it's just such an awful afternoon, and oh, I just felt dreadful. And my nephew uh, pipes up, uh, it's all right, Auntie Julie, he said. I feel like we're seeing a bit of the world. And, uh, and I just, uh, really made me smile, and, uh, and uh, he's, he's, he can be a bit of a horror sometimes, but no, not really, he's, he's delightful. And, but it was just such a, a word of wisdom, and, uh, and I truly wasn't, you know, being sarcastic in any way, he truly meant it. And, um... It really made me think, really, about how, for me, uh, the, the whole thing was about destination. It was all about where I was getting to. And when I arrived, then the fun would begin, then the joy would start when I got to where I needed to be. But for Malachi, Malachi was grounded in the moment. He was grounded in the present moment. He was on the journey And sometimes as Christians, we can be a bit like me. We're looking forward to the promise of heaven, but we're not looking outward to a present world that needs God's saving power. We do need the promise of the future. We need it as as believers. We need the promise to sustain us on the journey, but it should not paralyze us. The apostles had a present call. They had an eternal hope, but a present call. The Holy Spirit was for their present. The late John Stott says this of the apostles in this passage of scripture. He says that there is an inconsistency in them gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It was the earth, not the sky, that which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world that needed him. It is the same, he says, for us. The Holy Spirit was promised, and now he, after Pentecost, he is a present reality for us. He gives us first-hand knowledge of all that Jesus has done for us. He illuminates him so that we can see him better. He makes us certain that we are adopted into the family of God, loved children of our Heavenly Father, no matter who we are, no matter where we have come from, no matter what we have done. The Spirit is changing us shaping us to be more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the first-hand knowledge he gives us of Christ helps us to be authentic witnesses to him. All of us will walk out of these doors later today and into the world, and some of us will go into situations that are difficult, will be struggling with ill health, with loss, with bereavement, with difficult family, financial circumstances. 
Some of us will be in calmer waters and life will be good. Some of us will walk into the week with a sense of purpose, but others of us may feel adrift. But the promise of the Spirit after Pentecost becomes a reality for us all. And we're just going to pause for a moment. And I want you to think about whatever you're going out into this week and the people that you will meet and the places you will go. And just in the quiet of a a minute's um, thought and prayer, to ask the Spirit to fill you afresh, to reveal more of Jesus to you, more of God's great love, to fill you with certainty and assurance, to illuminate his word to you or your hearts or some area of your life that needs the transformation of the Spirit. So we're going to just take a minute, and wherever you are, and whatever your need, just ask the Spirit now to come fill and shape and mold and touch you afresh.